listeners, welcome back to ITS podcast. This is the 66th episode. I'm Mariam Kavashka from Amdabad University. Let's start this episode with news mini section. Ruzbe has gathered the latest news from around the world related to our field, from EV to railway and flying cars. Following the news, Haluk will give a review about a PhD, which was awarded the Outstanding PhD Research in 2020, titled Development and Testing of Navigation Algorithms for Autonomous Underwater Vehicles, written by Francesco Fanelli. On top of all this, we have a special guest from Innovis Technology, Omar David Kalaf, the CEO and the co-founder of Innovis, based in Israel and active in LiDAR technology, is going to talk about their technology and products and his views about autonomous vehicles. So stay with us. Let's start our news mini section. Take it away, Ruzbeh. This is Ruzbeh Mohammadi. For this episode of ITS Podcast, I bring you three news from India, US, and China. First news from New Delhi, India. Railways to rely on artificial intelligence to prevent signal failures. Indian Railways has undertaken remote condition monitoring of the system, a new approach for the national transporter to predict failures through the effective use of artificial intelligence. The signaling system is vital for safe operations and the railways completely depend on its signaling assets along with the real-time information. Currently, the railways follow a manual maintenance system and adopt find and fix methods rather than predict and the prevent approach. Now we are introducing remote condition monitoring using non-intrusive sensors for continuous online monitoring of signals. Track circuits, axle counters, and their subsystem of interlocking, power supply system, including the voltage and current levels, relays, timers, said a senior railway ministry official involved with the project. The system entails the collection of inputs on a predetermined interval and sending this to a central location. As a result, any flaws or problem in the signaling system would be detected on a real-time basis and reflected to avoid possible delays and mishap. The failure of signals is one of the major reasons for train accident and delays. The system envisages data transfer through a wireless medium and data based on these inputs will be utilized with help of artificial intelligence for predictive and prescriptive big data analytics. This will enable prediction of signaling assets failures, automated self-correction, and inform decisions of interventions strategies, said the officials. The railways have decided that trial be taken up into two sections of Western Railway and Southwestern Railway of Ahmedabad, Wadodara, and Banglar, Mosoro. Depending upon the feedback, the system would gradually be extended to other sections. Second news from US. Tesla will change the type of battery cells it uses in all its standard range cars. Tesla is changing the battery chemistry it uses in all its standard range electric vehicles to a version with a lithium iron phosphate LFP cathode. The move is likely a way for Tesla to increase profit margins on its fully electric cars while not necessarily having the rise vehicle prices. In the past, Tesla has been criticized for sporadic vehicle price changes. The company is already making vehicles with LFP chemistry at its factory in Shanghai. It sells those cars in China, the Asia Pacific region and Europe. China generally promotes the use of this type of battery according to material researchers and consultant Roskill. The firm notes that around 95% of LFP cathodes manufacturing is produced in China. In September, Tesla asked Model 3 reservation holders in the US if they accept the car 
that had a battery made with LFP cells instead of nickel cobalt aluminum oxide NCA cells that Tesla previously used for Model 3 sedans sold in North America. LFP has both positive and negative trade-offs, said Sam Abdosamid, Guidehouse Insight Principal Analyst, is significantly cheaper and doesn't require any nickel or cobalt. It's more stable, which makes it safer. One major downside. The cells are less energy dense, which means they offer lower range for the same weight as other cells. Cold weather also affects them more. Abul Samit said. Abul Samit believes Tesla's change is probably a smart idea because they probably aren't go to lower prices, so it will likely boost their bottom line. Other automakers such as Ford Motor and Volkswagen have expressed interest in battery chemistry for lower-priced models. According to Abel Samit, he said it's also particularly appealing for commercial vehicles like delivery vans that don't need multi-hundred-mile range. Third and last news from China. Chinese EV maker Xpeng's flying car company rises over 500 million as it aims to roll out in 2024. HT Iro, the flying car company backed by Chinese electric car maker Xpeng and its founder, raised more than 500 million from outside investors. The money will be put toward research and development and rolling out a new model that has the ability to operate in the air and on the roads. Zhao Deli, founder and president of HT Iro said in a press release that the company's next generation model will be fully integrated flying vehicle and automobile designed for both low altitude air travel and road driving. The company is planning for an official rollout of new vehicle in 2024, Zhao said. However, he did not give a timeline for when the new vehicle will be launched. HD Aero is an affiliate company of Xpeng, one of the Chinese electric vehicle startup. Xpeng's founder, He Xiaoping, as well as the electric car company itself, are investors in HD Aero. Flying cars, also called electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, have generated a lot of interest from automakers and startups. Companies including South Korea's Hyundai, German startup Lilium, and China-based Ihang are developing flying passenger vehicles. In July, HD Aero launched the X2, its second flying car prototype, and first that's able to carry a passenger. Xpeng's founder, he told CNBC in an interview last month that flying vehicles will be part of the company's future. Still, such vehicles face a number of hurdles to get off the ground including regulatory approval to operate. Thank you for listening to this news mini section of ITS podcast. We will bring you more news from ITS world in coming episodes of ITS podcast. Thank you Ruzbe. That was Ruzbe Mohammadi from Alto University of Finland. Every year there's a recognition of the best PhD research. In 2020, Francesco Fanelli was the candidate to receive this award. Haluk has reviewed this work and will share his point of view with you. This is the book review section for ITS podcast. Read by Dr. Haluk Aran, Frat University, Elazığ, Turkey. The book title is Development and Testing of Navigation Algorithms for Autonomous Underwater Vehicles and consists of 153 pages. Published by Springer associated with Recognizing Outstanding PhD Research in 2020. Written by Francesco Fanelli. <laughs> the ocean engineering has received growing interest in recent years. Also, autonomous underwater navigation can still be considered a challenging task because the high level of performance required, which is further enhanced if multiple vehicles are simultaneously employed, and the limitations due to the physics of the marine environment. 
The inability to use the global positioning system underwater, which is widely used by land and air robots for location detection, leads to a redefinition of what can be considered the minimum accuracy standard. The choice of the best navigation system for a given application is sometimes more affected by the raw quality of the sensors used than by choosing one estimation algorithm or another. Today, one of the main challenges is the precise localization of underwater vehicles. This book, which is actually a PhD thesis, focuses on developing accurate attitude and position estimation algorithms for autonomous underwater vehicles. This study consists of the results of the research on underwater robotics at the Mechatronics and Dynamic Modeling Laboratory of the Department of Industrial Engineering of the University of Florence. It contains navigation algorithms for autonomous underwater vehicles, the related analysis of state-of-the-art solutions, the improvement of existing algorithms, and the development of new ones. Underwater self-localization and pose estimation are the main goal of the research. Since the unavailability of instruments and technologies for operations below the surface represent one of the major difficulties for autonomous missions. As for the position estimation, a UKF-based filter was developed using GPS on surface or underwater acoustic position measurements, depth, velocity data, and accurate attitude estimate. In addition, the possibility of including real-time estimation of sea currents within such filter relying only on a mathematical vehicle model was explored. A preliminary laboratory research and testing phase were paired with a significant share of experimental activity at sea. This allowed to identify problems that could not be identified without a practical confrontation with the characteristics of the underwater environment. All the vehicles of the MDM laboratory are presented in Chapter 2. They validate the developed algorithms and are introduced in Chapter 4. Both the attitude and position estimators were tested online during the execution of suitable autonomous missions, while the performance of the current estimator was evaluated by means of simulations exploiting real navigation data accurate during previous campaigns. These satisfying results are obtained in Chapter 5, which may constitute a suitable alternative to existing post-estimation strategies. Nonetheless, there is still room for improvement. For instance, smart initialization procedures for the attitude estimation filter described in section 4.1 is useful in the case of severely perturbed environments. Furthermore, depending on the available onboard processing units, more elaborate vehicle and current mathematical models could be used within the filter introduced in section 4.2 in order to increase its accuracy. Underwater localization and autonomous navigation have been considered challenging research topics by the scientific community for many years, and they continue to draw scientists' attention. Many navigation strategies and different algorithms have been developed over the years trying to establish efficient strategies to cope with the difficulties posed by the marine environment. The book provides readers with extensive information and a source of inspiration for the further development and testing of navigation algorithms for AUVs. The intended reader is everybody or professionals associated with the field for navigation of autonomous underwater vehicles. That was Professor Haluk Eren from Firaj University, 
Elastic Turkey. Thank you, Haluk. Indeed, the underwater localization and navigation is challenging. Now let's grab our tea or coffee and listen to our talk with David. A very warm welcome to Omer David Kalov, the CEO and the co-founder of Innovis. Headquartered in Israel, the company was founded in January 2016. Innovis had a great success as it overtook older, more established LiDAR developers to earn a design win with BMW or BMW, uh, marking the industry's first major design win for series production of autonomous vehicles. The company has also secured partnerships with tier one solution providers, including Aptiv, Magna International, Samsung Harman, and Hiring Technologies. Prior to co-founding Innoviz, Omer served as an officer in an allied technological unit of the Intelligent Corps of the Israel Defense Forces, before going on to, the, to a distinguished career in optomechanics, electrical engineering, MEMS, and more. He held senior leadership roles at companies including Consumer Physics, STM Microelectronics, and IDF, where he served as the system and product team manager, R&D manager and project manager and system architecture manager, respectively. He holds a BSc and MSc in electrical engineering and an MBA, all from Tel Aviv University, where he has also served as a lecturer. Today, he will tell us about Innovis and its products. Hi, Omer. Welcome to ITS Podcast. And, Hi, thank you for yeah. inviting me. Thank you. Uh, this was a short introduction. I would like to know if I have missed something or if you want to add something to it. Well, I think the, the main thing is, uh, I think there, there is a very significant uh, design win we announced a few months ago and um, and probably it was not, uh, you know, was not announced strongly enough <laughs> because it's uh, it's another serious production for an autonomous uh, shuttles program that is going to be launched end of uh, next year. Uh, with a very, uh, it, it was uh, with an undisclosed uh, partner from the European uh, space, but a very strong automotive uh, uh, company. And I think it's a, it's another application which I strongly believe in, uh, in terms of uh, bringing uh, autonomous mobility to the space. Thank you so much, Omer. Yes, we, we are going to talk about your ideas about this also right now. Uh, so uh, when we look at your website, uh, we see that you have two products listed in your website, Innovis 1 and Innovis 2. Uh, could you please explain what is the difference between these two? Uh, both are solid state, or is there any other difference? Yeah. Yeah. So th those are two products, and uh, basically, uh, you know, the, it's different generations. Innovis One is the pro the first product that we brought to automotive grade. Um, I would say that uh, it's based on a chipset that we developed in order to fit into the requirements that we got from our customers. But also from time perspective, uh, it was kind of the first generation of that chipset. Now, meanwhile, meanwhile in, uh, industrializing uh, the first product and going through the automotive uh, uh, testing, we continue to develop the, the core technology on, on all fronts. Uh, Innovis is a very multidisciplinary company. So we're not only, I would say, developing a specific, uh, you know, part of the LiDAR. We are actually developing uh, many parts of it. And as such, we are able to make uh, very meaningful uh, improvements in, in total. I mean, we, we make improvements uh, in the detector, in the laser, in the scanner, in the optics, etc. So uh, Innovis 2 is uh, basically just uh, another uh, time slot in, in the kind of uh, capture, a snapshot in, in, in the technology progress that is now uh, being, um, you know, all wrapped in, in, a, in a new package, uh, which allows us to make uh, two very meaningful steps. One on the performance, we are able to improve the performance by a factor of uh, 30. Uh, three zero, uh, and another is making a significant cost reduction of about seventy percent. So, I think those two steps are, uh, you know, again, it's another step, and uh, we will continue to push uh, in order to make improvements <laughs> over time. Thank you so much, 
Omer. So um, uh, if if you want to design a, uh, a design an autonomous car with 360 view with lidar, how many of your innovative lidars we need to cover this 360 degrees? Because uh, I read that they have a 125 and 40 uh, field of view. If if mm -hmm. I'm not mistaken. No, it's it's a great question. I think that uh, the the, <laughs> the answer would be uh, that uh, look the the, the industry and autonomous driving have different uh, types of applications. You have um, you have the robot taxi, which probably require uh, what you stated, the 360 coverage. But uh, the, the MVP, and has, as you know, every industry has a certain minimum uh, minimal uh, valuable proposition. Uh, it's actually not there. So uh, the, the applications that I see uh, going into the market and growing fast is, is, uh, is L3. Is, is a privately owned vehicle. And as such, you only need one LiDAR front looking. You don't need the 360 because it's mostly covering uh, the highway. I mean, if you think about the difference between the robot taxis that need to travel from anywhere to anywhere and, uh, and an L3, uh, it's mostly about uh, keeping your lane, I mean, driving the highway, changing lanes, but there's no intersections and not so many people around you. The, the, the scene is much less complex, and therefore uh, the testing uh, is shorter, uh, and the cost of the platform is, is cheaper, and therefore people can still, uh, I would say, finance it, because it's a privately owned vehicle. It's not, it's not a business, uh, you know, uh, cost of, it's not the, the cost of the, doing the service. Uh, the other application uh, is, is shuttles. Okay, so for shuttles, it's, it is an urban creature. It means it does travel in the city, but it travels much uh, slower. It serves a, a different purpose. It's uh, predetermined routes. You can test it over and over again. And it actually makes, uh, gives value uh, to many people. And, and, and as such, you do need multiple sensors around it. It could be four, it could be even six. It, it really depends on the length of the vehicle. And just to give you some perspective, if, even if you would use a, a 360 sensor, it actually does cannot serve your purpose because on such long vehicles, when you place a spinner on the on the roof, you need to keep it very, very high in order for the roof not to be an obstacle. And then you actually create a very strong blind spot around the vehicle. And for an urban vehicle, it's not okay. I mean, you need to have that short range detection. So you anyway need multiples of sensors, and that's very, it's inefficient when you're working with such uh, equipment because usually they are more expensive. So using multiple sensors is anyway needed. You need uh, something that you can mount in a lower position, so it's actually embedded within the vehicle, and therefore you need something that is smaller, and you don't benefit from the 360 due to that. So a front-looking LiDAR is anyway uh, the, the, the way forward, and, and therefore I think that's also a good fit for what we do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That was very interesting. Thank you for explanation. Uh, not uh, the question is: Do you have your own driverless cars, or is just a, a production of lidars you have? I, I drive my own car. <laughs> <laughs> you made it driverless. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, I, I drive myself. I, I always say I drive myself. Uh, and uh, but no, Innovi is, is developing a, a lidar, and I think that it's uh, it's also important because. You know, there are many uh, platform players uh, that were trying to develop their own LiDAR and eventually got to a conclusion that it doesn't make sense. Because uh, in order to bring the LiDAR to the maturity and price, you need to have sufficient volume. And there is no single player today in the market that can actually get there. And companies like Innoviz uh, definitely, you know, can get there through sourcing our LiDAR to different uh, companies. And, and as such, we, we don't see a good reason why we should go in that uh, direction ourselves, at least not in, the, in these days. Interesting. So uh, I read something interesting in your website about multiple reflections for extreme weather conditions like rain, snow, fog. Uh, just I'm sure our listeners, they know what bad weather is the nemesis of LiDAR. So uh, can you explain the work <laughs> principle of multiple reflections technology, please? Yeah, sure. I mean just to maybe go through the example you gave. So when you shoot a pulse of light and that light uh, meets a drop at midair, 
you don't want the LIDO to be obscured by you know the first drop that it meets. Now, when it, when the light meets that drop, some of the light bounces back. Most of it actually goes through. Mm -hmm. So it's it's actually a, a question about the lidar uh, technical aspect, whether it's only triggered from the first uh, encounter of light back, or it actually can capture multiple reflections, meaning that you know light that did pass. Uh, the drop uh, can meet an object and reflect it back. And if you're able to, to do that, it allows you to filter out, uh, you know, uh, spatial noise. And that's a good way to mitigate rain. Obviously, every drop of water you meet, uh, some of the light bounces back, so it doesn't go through. So the, the range uh, degrades, but really in a very minimal way, uh, even in very extreme rain. Uh, the statistics is uh, of rain. It's you know you need to define it statistically how how dense it is, but the range is only uh, reduced by a few percentages, so it's really minimal. And you can think about fog as a, as an extrapolation of that, right? It's like you have a high density of particles uh, in a certain area, uh, which uh, makes reflections, but uh, still light uh, goes through and allows you to see further. Obviously, uh, range is reduced, so you need to drive slower, which is, I believe, okay. Uh, and that's that's an advantage that the LIDARs have on top of cameras because cameras do not have that kind of capabilities of uh, seeing beyond uh, the first reflection. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. Thank you so much for explaining. Because you know, where I'm staying, we are dealing with this extreme weather. <laughs> so, uh, well, it is well, it's, uh, it's more rare. <laughs> <laughs> yes, true. <laughs> so, uh, it was mentioned that there is no gap between pixels. Uh, what does mm. it mean exactly? And whether this feature can detect, uh, for example, potholes on the road? No, I think it's a great question because I think that's actually also uh, touches a point that. Uh, uh, many people don't really understand when when it comes to when this, in discussions with car makers on how they need the lidar to operate. Uh, the no gaps between pixels uh, basically means that there is no blind spot. It means that you know in, in the traditional lidars when you have a certain amount of lines but are separated, it means that you know if, even if you get a reflection from something, since you don't have any context and you don't know really if this is uh, attached to something or possibly just a reflection from the road itself or a cat eye or a bot dot or or anything you you can't actually understand if this uh, might be a problem or not because car makers uh, want to design a car to meet a certain velocity when the car drives itself which means that they need to make uh, a system that is safe in in the terms that it can uh, avoid any um, collision with objects that might make uh, a safety issue, which, which basically means that it shouldn't drive on objects that are higher than a certain height. Okay, because, uh, for example, the suspension length of the of the wheel of the tires are, are you know around 15 centimeter, and basically anything that is taller than that can really really damage the car and basically also hurt the people inside. So once you, you know that you need to be able to detect uh, these kind of heights of objects, it means that you need to have very, very high resolution. And it means that uh, the, the, the distance, the gap between lines should be basically zero. You need to have very high resolution without no gaps. So uh, the system can can understand if it, look, it looks at something that might be higher than you know, that height. And as you can imagine, uh, detection of a, a 14 centimeter or 15 centimeters at 200 meters is rather difficult. It requires a very high resolution. And of course, it's not sufficient uh, to have uh, only one pixel on an object because, again, you, you don't know if it's part of the road or not. You actually need several pixels on top of it, which makes the requirement of resolution higher. So when we talk about uh, a certain resolution, at a certain field of view without gaps, it means that it's not, I mean, you can you can get very uh, high vertical field of view if you make gaps between the lines, but then you you lose actually that uh, safety uh, feature. And, and some LIDARs don't have enough lines to cover the, the entire vertical field of view without that, 
So if they need to uh, keep uh, the lines without uh, gaps between them, they, they actually have too narrow of a vertical field of view, which is not good as well, because of course you need to uh, support a, a road which could have different uh, slopes and the car could have a load in, in the back. So the, the, the LiDAR might actually direct somewhere else than you expected and wind and acceleration and brakes, everything uh, makes and chassis uh, aging and many things that happen over time that can affect the pointing of the LiDAR. And, and therefore you need to have enough spare and buffer in the terms of like, uh, what's the size of the vertical field of view that you're looking at. So uh, uh, this is—I uh, heard that about the bumps and 15 centimeters. And but what about the ditch? Something like potholes that many countries are, uh, you know, facing as a problem. Can yeah, we see the potholes with lidar? Yes, of course. Uh, yes, no, no, yes. I mean, the, there is no reason why it shouldn't. I mean, basically, yes. the, the lidar range accuracy is very high. The resolution is very high. And it can give you a very strong understanding of the of the road condition. Mm -hmm. I I know that some are actually relying on lidars in order to apply active suspension, so they can actually uh, predict uh, the road and and therefore is, uh, do uh, control the suspension in a way that gives you a much more smooth uh, driving. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. Thank you for explanation. Uh, there's a software coming along with your um, uh, Innovis 1 and Innovis 2. Uh, can you explain a little bit about this software exactly? What does it do and uh, how it works? Yeah, sure. So, you know, the LiDAR eventually provides you uh, a 3D video. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, you know, for a car to make decisions for driving, it can't just use raw data. It can't use just the image. For the same reason why you don't just connect a camera to the to the computer, you you need uh, another perception layer that uh, does all of the algorithms that translate that those pixels into objects and 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 you know meaningful insights on their direction, uh, on their size and the location, and that's exactly what is needed as well for a three D sensor. And of course, it requires a, a different set of, uh, I would say, algorithms and, of course, training and annotation. And, you know, it's a huge effort that needs to be carried uh, on, on this kind of uh, sensor. Uh, we've uh, been collecting data for quite a long time, and we're also getting the help of our customers to help us uh, extend our catalog and collection of uh, edge cases or interesting uh, examples. And, and that is something that we provide to the market because I think for the same reason which I talked about, you know, the, the doing the LiDAR yourself, you know, there is no car maker in that, you know, that it makes sense for him uh, to build that infrastructure and activity uh, by himself. I mean, it's a huge effort. It's, it's a lot of, uh, uh, I would say, investment in, in the R&D that eventually goes into sometimes, and I think, uh, even only for a very specific LiDAR, because every LiDAR has its uh, footprint, a uh, fingerprint, uh, which obviously gives you the ability to extract the most out of it. So uh, doing that layer uh, for any random LiDAR would probably not give you the best result. And I think uh, having those two activities hand in hand under the same roof, sometimes even getting the low-level uh, data that comes within the LiDAR that gives you that extra kind of uh, understanding is, is giving you the, the optim optimized solution from cost as well and from performance. And, and basically, that's uh, also um, uh, the funny thing is that eventually it's actually it's a mandatory. You know, car makers, when they provide RFIs and RFQs, they want a LiDAR, but what they really want is a product. They want not a sensor. They want... Uh, a, a redundancy for the camera. They are, they are giving you uh, the same spec they are giving the cameras because if there is a feature that the camera is is able to achieve and the lidar is not, you don't really you can't rely on it. Mm -hmm. So it has to meet the same KPIs. Otherwise, you cannot use uh, that benefit because the redundancy is key. So the the requirements are very much similar to what cameras can do. 
And, and, and a lot of the discussion, that's something also that the market doesn't really understand, that a huge eff- effort on the due diligence that is done by the different uh, customers is, is actually on that. I mean, they are happy about the resolution and, and the range and, and everything, but, and, and, you know, net, 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 what they really need is the computer vision to be able to support their features. And that's a huge effort uh, on their due diligence to make sure that the computer vision is able to comply with them. I understand. That was, that's a very good point. Uh, so for, for all this software that you said, uh, um, machine learning, computer vision, and uh, the whole package that you are providing, what kind of computational power will this software need? Uh, for example, if a university is uh, purchasing this um, system, a Jetson board will be enough, a laptop will be enough, or uh, what kind of computational board they would need to process all this data? Okay. So two interesting uh, insights here. One is that uh, the platform has to be automotive grade, okay? And as such, the 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 options are not very large, <laughs> okay? Of course, a laptop is 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 not acceptable. Of course, you know when when you're running your software on a car, it needs to run on a processor that meets automotive grade, ACLD. The options are not very high. Now, the second insight, and of course, you should also know that the, all of the algorithms and code has to follow automotive grade as well. I mean, ASPICE is part of the, the process in which you need to develop your uh, product in automotive, which makes it another layer of complication, but yet it's it's a mandatory thing. But let's not dive there. I think the, the other topic, which is I think would be interesting is that the processing power of computer vision for LiDAR is significantly lower than a camera, significantly. The footprint is very minimal, and I'll, I'll explain why. And I think that it it's, could be very interesting to, to people to actually if, understand that the computational power that you need to have uh, between a, a camera alone and a camera plus LiDAR the processing power that you need on doing uh, the camera plus slider is actually significantly lower uh, altogether, you know, to meet the same performance. Because with a camera, you can see, you know, those curves that show how you can increase the teraflops in order to kind of maximize, uh, you know, the 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 you know the the false alarm and uh, the predictability and true positive, etc. Um, you know, you can actually get using another modality. Uh, makes you uh, jump very quickly, uh, significantly higher, and the processing power is very minimal. And the reason it's minimal is because the LiDAR data is, uh, modality is very different. You know, in a camera, when you need to uh, try to understand what you're looking at, you don't have any context of where it is, how far it is, or what it is. In, In cameras, you usually start by trying to understand what you're looking at and by understanding that is a car or a person and knowing the the normal size of things you might understand where it is which obviously creates another delay in the process because you you first need to search the entire frame look for things it could be hidden etc um and and it's it's always proportional to the resolution and, and it's always uh, proportional to the to the size of the frame, etc. In lidar, it's very different because it's by design you get a, it's a point cloud, which means that you have clusters. It means that any object in the scene is separated spatially from other stuff. Mm-hmm. So the first and very simple process that you do is understand that there are different objects in the scene. That is a very simple process that you can actually do if with very minimal, you know, a, 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 I always say a fourth grader can do that uh, algorithm very easily. You just separated it between the different objects. Now you have, you can uh, think about it as, as a very small picture, you know, that uh, it's actually two orders of magnitude lower in resolution probably. And, and you basically just need to understand what this is. And, and the process to understand what is that group of points is, is, is basically a very short uh, processing, which makes it uh, very easy uh, to extract. 
and you don't need to look, you know, between uh, and, and basically that you have that separation uh, intuitively, right? Intuitively in, in the LIDAR. And the interesting thing is that the LIDAR, uh, you know, basically when you think about the, the, the application of uh, driving an autonomous car, what you are mostly concerned with is object detection, not necessarily classification. You want to know if your path is clear. You, you want to know uh, where things are moving or if they're moving. That actually uh, has a significant advantage in a LiDAR compared to a camera. Mm -hmm. If you think about you know, the way that uh, machine vision is work, operate computer vision, you know, if someone now uh, pushes a, a piano into the road, right? I mean, it could happen, right? It's like that black swan of things that might happen maybe once in a million, but it still can happen. If if the camera can't recognize the shape and the size of the color, or maybe confuse it between uh, a shadow casted from a tree somewhere, uh, it won't understand it. It won't understand where it is. And it might, I mean, you, you see the accidents that, you know, cars uh, with vision only go into strange looking uh, trucks or, 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 you know, police cars, et cetera, because, you know, you, you need to have a sufficient variety of uh, objects in order to really understand what they are. And in the LIDAR, I think it's very clear that, you know, once you get a reflection, a physical reflection from an object and you see the shape of it, you see where it is. Even if I don't know if it's a you know a police car or I don't know uh, a tree, I'm exact. Of course, it's a look. They look different, and but at least you would not run into it. Okay, let's start with that, which is I think uh, a, a good minimum <laughs> expectation from a system. Yes, it's already categorized as an obstacle. Done, <laughs> whatever it is. Exactly, and yes. that's that's from the go. I mean, that's that's something that you get in time of flight. <laughs> okay, so yes. that's how fast you know it. <laughs> 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 yes, yes, true, true. Thank you, thank you. Uh, by the way, uh, what is the rate of this uh, ride, uh, LIDARs? And uh, can you tell us uh, approximately what's the power consumption of uh, this system? Yeah, it's, it's about uh, 15 watts, which is basically very, I mean, if you compare it, people are, you know, it's, it's, very, it's very low, just to give some perspective, you know, um, you know uh, EVs, uh, using 400 kilowatt hour uh, batteries, you understand it's uh, it's meaningless. It's uh, it's yes. uh, it's really meaningless. <laughs> yes, yes, thank you. And uh, one more question that appeared to me after uh, you talked about the aging of the car, suspension, and all these things, the load. Uh, do we need uh, a frequent calibration for these uh, lidars, or uh, for example, when the car? falls into pothole or after driving a very bumpy road or something, do they need a frequent calibration? No, uh, they not require any calibration for 15 years. That's kind of like the requirements. Okay. And yeah. in, order to, in, or, in order to meet that, there are several ways you can try to solve it. One is to have sufficient spare, you know, in the, in the design, uh, that even if you have a certain uh, chassis change, uh, you can actually still capture the, the the required field of view to meet all of the requirements you have. That's one one way. Another way is that you know our lidar specifically has the ability to actually uh, pivot the, the 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 beam. So if we uh, have the ability to uh, detect the ground. And, and basically, that's also good for many other things, such as uh, driving in a slope, etc. You know, you can actually pivot the the, the point of view, the, the viewing point. Mm -hmm. Actually, for for slope, it's not allowed. That's actually not in, because you, you need to take into assumption that there are things that could change in the in the car uh, position pointing uh, rather rapidly. And that's something that, uh, that you you don't want the system to react to because it can change too fast. Mm -hmm. You know, slope is part of it because the car can go in a very bumpy way. So you, you can't actually pivot through that. Or um, I think the things that you can try to pivot for are related mostly for aging because it's slow moving, slow changing. And uh, I think uh, car load is something that you can actually try it because it's not changing that fast. And uh, that's all. 
So this uh, uh, this uh, pivot uh, happens automatically or it's manual? No, automatically, yeah. Okay. It's like ground detection. But oh, again, yes. it's like oh, very, yes. very yes. minimal yes. for very slow, very, very slow uh, changing uh, elements. Yes, yes, thank you. So uh, I think that my next question, you almost answered it, but however, let's let's talk about it. What do you have to say to those engineers and researchers that believe we do not need LiDAR as one of the main sensors of the car? There, there are lots of debate going on about this, that maybe we replace it with radar and stereo vision or even ditch radar and just just camera. I know that you gave some hints as answer to this, but let's talk about this. Yeah, um, look, uh, I'll say it very, it's it's actually a very easy answer. Much easier than I would expect this dialogue to continue, I have to say. And uh, look, eventually, uh, not only autonomous driving, any feature in a car that uh, is related to safety, needs to meet a certain requirements, which is functional safety, and there are other, it's called ACLD, or it's by the ISO 262, but let's keep that kind of terminology aside. Basically, it means that any degradation of a certain um, feature that might lead uh, to a safety issue, whether it's for the people inside the car or outside the car, mm-hmm. uh, cannot happen with a single point of failure. I mean, no single point of failure in the design can lead uh, to a safety uh, situation. And I, I believe that you would agree with me that autonomous driving is somehow related uh, to safety. And again, it's not only for, it's every feature, really every feature in the car uh, that is related, it needs to meet that. Now, of course, when it comes to autonomous driving, uh, you need to think about the feature and the feature is usually, it's it means that you need to, I mean, if, if you only use a camera and the camera is now uh, you know, suffering from low light condition or direct sun, uh, two cameras cannot solve uh, that redundancy uh, issue, right? So you cannot uh, reach autonomous driving with ACLD uh, only by using two cameras. You can use one camera and reach ACLD, but then you need a driver to be the redundant sensor. So basically le- level two, uh, which means that the car can make decision. It could, you know, it can start from lane uh, keeping or just braking and can completely drive the car. But you as the driver are still responsible. You are, because you are part of the ACLD, you are still uh, responsible to react if the camera makes any decision that are not good. And the only way to reach level three eventually is to replace the driver uh, with another sensor that can uh, support the camera's features. Mm-hmm. Now, you you said uh, radars. Uh, the problem with radars is that they cannot meet the requirements of the camera because of their very low resolution. So, you know, a camera, a, a radar could be a very good instrument to, you know, forward collision of big objects. But when it comes to driving understanding and understanding the potholes, as you said, it's really far away from. Uh, where it needs, it yeah. could actually be, uh, you know, a complementary to the camera. Today, the the industry doesn't see any other sensor but the lidar that can actually meet all of those requirements. And again, the regulation doesn't say you have to use a lidar. It says that you need to have a secondary sensor. Mm-hmm. Today, the only sensor that meets that is is a lidar, and and that's why. Look, as long as uh, some companies today are keeping L two. And they say it's an L2. They're not trying, to, I mean, they're calling it full self driving, but it drives the car, which is correct, but it's not instead of you, it's only for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and they won't be able to reach uh, level three and, and allow the driver to disengage until uh, they provide that kind, kind of level of redundancy. Mm-hmm. I think they will get there at some point. I think they don't, they probably don't feel enough pressure in terms of uh, the market because. I think they don't see others really getting theirs very soon, but I think it will happen because, you know, for example, BMW is going to be on the road with an L3. And at some point, uh, you know, those companies, without naming them, which is the obvious one, uh, is uh, will will make their own decision how to how to, you know, how to break that uh, glass ceiling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nice. Um, so uh, your car 
will drive itself. It's a slogan on your first page. I saw it, very interesting. Uh, what is your thoughts about this? At the moment, we are very cautious about driverless cars and their popularity. Uh, when they will be used as a norm in our urban streets? What do you think? I'm happy you asked me that question, really, because, uh, look, uh, autonomous driving is a, is a topic that uh, is uh, became a huge hype in many years. And it feels to me that the discussion about autonomous driving uh, is too much centered around the leisure part of it. I mean, how fun it could be and that you can use, you can be more efficient when you you, know, you don't need to drive and it looks, you can listen to music, etc. But let's, let's uh, think really about what's the value here, um, you know, 80% to 90% of the accidents that still happen on a, a, every year caused by human error. Most of the accidents are related to human dis, uh, mistake because of distraction. And it's mostly because when people are driving on the highway and on straight, on straight roads, they, they have overconfidence on, on their understanding of the road and allow themselves to uh, not be uh, attentive. And... If you think about how many, like 1.5 million people die every year and 50 million people are injured, and I come from a family where my sister got into a very serious accident and I saw how that dramatically changed. She was only injured, you know, uh, very serious injured, but, you know, that changed completely the life of my family. And if you think about what is still, every one of us, every day, what is still the most risky part that we do on a day-to-day? -day. What's the what's the one thing we do which probably is uh, facing us with the highest risk? It's driving. Now, the world uh, uh, two years ago uh, or almost two years ago, you know, uh, got into a new uh, time where people uh, the, the corona started to happen, and people uh, felt uh, that they cannot accept. Uh, that uh, people die, you know, so easily, right? And uh, th that dramatic change in their life is unacceptable. And people were saying, let's get that vaccine. Let's solve this problem. It can't happen. It's not changing our life. We are living for 100 years uh, with a, a mobility uh, industry, which is a big part of our life. We have to use it. It serves our needs. We have to, but, but we got to accept the penalty, right? We can't accept that at all. And it's not a must. If you think about those uh, high numbers of accidents happen every year, it's it can be solved. And you know, I, I was I was driving a motorcycle for several years, and I remember when I stopped driving, I felt I was lucky. I felt that I I survived. I felt that you know <laughs> that uh, you know I'm out of the statistics because as as a driver on motorcycles, you always you feel so vulnerable. Yeah. And if you think about what we are really trying to do here, you know, the, the dialogue should be so different. You know, it's not about uh, leisure, about reading books. It, it's really about saving so much miserability and, 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 and our families. And, you know, it's, uh, it's so far you know, beyond that. And I don't understand the lack of sense of urgency. Mm -hmm. Now, the good news is that, you know, for these kind of things to happen, you need to have a very strong financial motivation of the of the market. Now, I I know that for car makers there is a huge benefit going into level three, and it's not only because of safety, and it's actually because they understand that once they will provide chauffeur services, they will start they will start be able to uh, collect revenues monthly based by from people that would prefer. Uh, to pay the car makers to take responsibility and not the insurance companies to pay for whatever mistake they will do. Because you will not you will not be willing to pay the insurance if you're not driving. I mean, why would I pay for insurance if I'm not responsible? So that amount of money can actually go to the car makers. So it's a really win-win situation. You will be in a much more safe. I mean, it's funny, like people are afraid of autonomous driving, <laughs> but look, <laughs> eventually it will be much safer than, than us. And, and, and basically it's uh, something that we all should uh, have a higher sense of urgency to have. And a good day, the good news is that it, there is also a very strong financial motivation for the industry to get there fast.
Mm -hmm. that, that is nice. Uh, the, another reason that you are scared of autonomous driving is a loss of lose of jobs. You know, many many drivers they have this fear that once it comes, we are gonna lose our jobs. But it's, that's um, a new time. I think there are uh, bigger through them <laughs> in that <laughs> space. We yeah. we obviously need to uh, continue uh, improving our lives. Yes, and. Uh, and, and there are enough uh, things to do <laughs> beyond true, driving. True, true, true. Thank you, Omer. Uh, one uh, last thing that I want to ask you. So uh, many of us in IEEE, including me, my students and other listeners, uh, we are from academia, we are from research environment. You are in industry, and I'm sure that you have your own R&D group, uh, I believe. Uh, but for our listeners from academia, what is your suggestion? Where they have to focus their research to? You know, uh, what are the main hurdles on your way that researchers in academia can help and solve? Good question. Look, uh, the the fun thing about uh, being an you know, innovator uh, is that uh, at every point of time you can find a, a bigger uh, tool set. Because, you know, if I try to do InnoViz uh, three years before I started, I wouldn't be able to do what we're doing. Because, uh, and, and that's part of why people are so sometimes surprised. How are you able to solve a problem that, you know, nobody managed to do in so many years? And the reason is that, you know, there is worldwide progress on several technologies, not always intended to use for this or that specific technology. But as an innovator, you, you always, before you start your journey, you need to understand, you know, what's the tool set that I can play with. And that always, you know, and it also changes, right? From every year, you learn about new innovation, new technologies that comes to a certain maturity that you can leverage on. I think that on autonomous driving, we are really at the, at the, at the first stages of this industry. And I think there is, so, there is much room for innovation. I think that uh, if we're thinking 50 years from today where this industry will be, I think that even the, you know, the most meaningful players, maybe they haven't started yet, right? I think that it, it has so much yet to go through a revolution uh, that uh, possibly, you know, the, the infrastructure would look so different. I mean, if you look at the road today, it was designed for people, right? I mean, it was designed for people that drive it. One, 100 years ago, when they developed the cars, it was to drive in, in, a, in a, an area where horses were driving, right? So it had bigger wheels and the car, I remember seeing some of those commercials, I mean, not 100 years ago, but I remember that in those commercials, um, you know, you see, you see uh, maybe I'm from uh, back of the time, yes, who knows? <laughs> but uh, you see those vehicles uh, climb on hills and go into the water. And the reason they developed that car in that way, because it had to fit into a certain infrastructure. Today, our car would not drive in the same, I mean, it couldn't drive the same uh, infrastructure. And I think that 50 years from today, uh, it will not look the same because... It will not be designed for people to drive it and it will look differently. The infrastructure would be stronger and will helpful and sometimes even offload some of the technology, you know, into the infrastructure. So I would uh, I would uh, urge people to, to think about, you know, where it needs to go. Uh, and I, I would say that uh, don't be don't think it's too late. I think it's uh, only very early in, 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 in how much uh, things can still uh, develop. It's, it's not in a single uh, element. It's all over the place. Thank you, Omer. Very well said. Very well said. Uh, so uh, I am done with my questions. Do you want to add anything to whatever we discussed so far? Uh, to add? No, I mean, I, if this is directed eventually for uh, students, I think, again, that this is a, an amazing period of time to be living in. I think the, the car market is really at its first stages. Mm -hmm. There are many, many things that uh, you know needs to be improved. Uh, I, I, I kind of, uh, you know, when people are saying, oh, cameras are enough, it, to me, it feels, you know, it's it feels to me that 
we're blocked. Like we, we need to imagine how cars, I mean, I want to think about 50 years from today. Yeah. We think that, you know, cars that are driving see better than me, see in 3D, see very high resolution, understand the scene much better than me. We can't think about how solving, to solve problem by trying to imitate people. Because we are, unfortunately, there are, we have some disabilities, okay? And, and yeah. trying to solve a problem by just trying to imitate ourselves is, uh, is really wrong. And I think that uh, nobody should be blocked from trying to improve and nobody should be blocked from trying to make, uh, you know, a safer uh, driving and mobility for all of us. And therefore, I think that uh, there is still much room for improvements all over the place. Great. Uh, thank you so much, Omar, for being with us. Uh, it was a very nice discussion. Uh, I hope everybody will enjoy this talk. Thank you, listeners, for being with us. This podcast is sponsored by IEEE Intelligent Transportation System Society. This was Dr. Mariam Kabishkar from IEEE ITS Society.